Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, the weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde. And I'm Kate Sheridan. Adam and Meg are off this week. It's Thursday, August 19th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A sudden spike of FDA rejections has resurfaced a time-honored frustration. You can't always trust biotech companies to be honest about their conversations with the agency. The vast majority of people in the U.S. hospitalized for COVID-19 have chosen not to get a vaccine. Stats Lev Fasher went to Louisiana to see how a surge of deaths among the unvaccinated is affecting health workers. He'll join us to talk about that, too. We'll start with a rundown of the latest news in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. My name is Maria. My name is Danielle, and Maria and I are the new hosts of Genentech's award-winning podcast, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. It's a show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Aww. So Maria, true story, is from the UK. She's into clinical data, transcription factors, and long runs on the beach. That's right. And Danielle is from Texas. She loves translational medicine, woodworking, and getting up close and personal with cancer cells. And when we're not botching each other's accents, you can usually find us chatting up other scientists about all kinds of cutting edge research. So grab a drink and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash podcast. There was some interesting news in biotech insider trading this week. The SEC brought charges against a guy who used to work at the company Medivation, uh, which people might recall in 2016 was acquired by Pfizer for, I think, something like $14 billion. What the SEC alleges is not that he insider traded shares of Medivation or of Pfizer, but rather that as soon as he got word that Pfizer was going to buy Medivation, and before that news was public, he bought shares, or rather he bought options, whatever. The point is, he put money on the stock of Insight, which is another biotech company, still exists, uh, that was perceived as being you know, a competitor to Medivation. They both were developing treatments for cancer. And what the SEC alleges is that he bet, correctly, allegedly, that Insight's share price would go up once the world heard that Pfizer was buying Medivation because they would perceive that you know the value of these biotech companies is high because a company like Pfizer might buy them. Um, and in fact, Insight's shares did go up and he allegedly made something on the order of $100,000 in what the SEC describes as illicit profit. Mm. Can I ask a question, Damien? Because I don't fully understand why the share prices of an unrelated company would go up. You'd think that an, a company acquiring a cancer company would mean that other cancer companies in the space no longer have an acquisition partner on the table. Why does why did this work? I suppose is why I'm asking. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I was kind of curious as to whether these charges would stick in part because of that, because, yeah, you know, that what's alleged is that he made this gamble, which ended up being correct. But one could imagine it going completely the other way, because, as you mentioned, if I were a market participant looking at Insight, you could totally take the other side of that coin and say, well, now Pfizer buying Insight is completely off the table. Precisely. So it's actually kind of a little a little bit of magical thinking to think that because Pfizer bought Medivation, the likes of Insight are more valuable. But in this case, you know, that was the perception, although according to the SEC documents, Insight's stock price went up by 8%. So it's Ooh. not like he had like a rainmaking investment, allegedly. Again, he has not uh, been convicted. 
Yeah, gotcha. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense. I know we talk a lot about validating the science, and so I was wondering if that was the situation here, but it still didn't really make sense to me because of the whole, you know, you're generally going to see a company buy one biotech company, not all of the biotech (laughs) companies in cancer. That would be too much money for anyone. Um, It also kind of reminded me a bit of the Tesla and Bitcoin thing from June. Do you remember this? It was where Tesla bought like a billion dollars in Bitcoin and then it announced that people would be able to use Bitcoin to buy Teslas. This feels even one more step removed from that, but the SEC also decided to uh, call that insider trading, allegedly. Um, (laughs) And I I think that's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, no, the the definition of insider trading has been fuzzy for many years in both, uh, I guess, philosophically, but even legally. I mean, the Supreme Court has taken on a few cases. There have been some uh, convictions that have been undone, basically, by legal review because, you know, there's classic insider trading, which is the sort of know it when you see it, buying shares uh, based on non-public information, etc. But there are so many... The Chris Collins insider trading. Right. <laughs> the nail on the head insider trading, where I believe he was caught uh, in a phone call basically saying, like, let's do some insider trading. So there's that. Um, but everything that is sort of orthogonal to that gets pretty complicated legally. The other thing I think that we'll be watching pretty closely for the rest of the year is what happens with conferences. Uh, The Delta Wave is very much here, and it kind of feels like some of the events that we had all hoped would be taking place in person and maybe even had planned to be taking place in person might not actually be able to take place in person. I did a little bit of of looking around, but Damien, I guess I'm kind of curious what what conferences you're going to be watching most closely on this count. Well, you know, the fall is a heavy time for medical conferences. So especially um, the ASH conference, the hematology conference is in the fall, um, and a few others kind of throughout December, all leading up to the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco uh, in early January. So it'll be interesting to see the decisions that are made. I, I know you poked around a little bit, and it seems like there's a mix of requiring vaccination, which seems reasonable enough, and the hybrid model, which we saw over the summer, um, where some people attend in person, but the rest of us, I say, as someone who attended a few virtual hybrid conferences, um, just stream it online. And, you know, with that, my curiosity would be, who's going to go, especially for these medical conferences, because you have the sort of push and pull of presumably these societies have spent money to reserve these meeting spaces and and they don't want to lose that money but also if you end up hosting a delta powered super spreader event at a medical conference the cognitive dissonance of that is brutal and and and, you know i don't think any of these societies whether hematology oncology whatever want to be associated with prolonging the pandemic as doctors yeah that makes sense i noticed that a lot of them a lot of these conferences have been putting in place vaccination requirements for people who want to go in person, which also makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting, I guess, to see how much this sticks, though. You know, as you mentioned, these societies have spent a lot of money reserving places, putting things together. I would be very curious to see if their contracts with their venues have a pandemic clause, I suppose, or a delta clause to see if there is a way for them to potentially shut things down if they need to. It'll be interesting to see if things change, I guess. So speaking of prolonging the pandemic, there was a really striking story uh, in the New York Times this week, co-authored by our former colleague Rebecca Robbins, about Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine and their production of it in South Africa. And basically the the crux of the story is that 
They are, as they promised, producing doses in South Africa. However, millions of those doses are getting shipped to Europe, uh, which, you know, as you can imagine, is not exactly a good look for the global north, where the uh, supply of vaccines is largely sufficient um, to be shipping them out of the global south, where that is very much not the case. As the Times notes, only 7% of South Africans have received even one dose of any vaccine. Right. And apparently this was possible, Rebecca noted in her article, um, that this is only possible because South Africa signed a contract, speaking of contracts, that had a really unusual provision in it that it it required South Africa basically to waive its ability to put export restrictions on vaccine doses. I forget, Damien, if this kind of restriction was imposed elsewhere. I know there were countries, I think, that thought about putting these kinds of restrictions on vaccines during the the early waves of the pandemic. I can't actually remember if any were imposed, though. There was reporting about some of the negotiations between Pfizer and other companies and some nations in, in South America. Um, the one that stuck out of my mind, I think it was the Financial Times reported that Pfizer had wanted them to put up basically like historic buildings as collateral um, for some of these vaccine contracts. I think most of that got hammered out to where um, you know, the parties, if not necessarily satisfied, were at least not scandalized uh, by, by how it took place. But, you know, this this story, the J&J South Africa story, it feels like it kind of fits within the context of the pharmaceutical industry's uh, strident opposition to any tinkering with intellectual property laws that would allow certain nations to uh, produce vaccines for themselves. And, and they make arguments, some of them relatively cogent, that that wouldn't actually help uh, with increasing the supply of vaccines in these countries and that it would set this bad precedent. Maybe people you know, are, are less moved by that. But I guess if you wanted to make those kind of arguments stick, this contract, as, as described in this story, is exactly what you would not want to do. Because I think any reasonable person reading this would say, this is absurd. There needs to be something to counter this. And all of the measures available would be on the order of waiving patents on COVID-19 vaccines, which I imagine Johnson & Johnson would not be in favor of. Right. You'd expect that if a company wants to control where its vaccine goes and they want to eliminate a country's ability to regulate that, they would have to give something in return, right? And that doesn't seem to really have happened here as much, especially because what you could offer as a pharmaceutical company and a vaccine manufacturer is vaccines, ideally. Yeah. The other thing this story fits into is just this ongoing crisis, really, of vaccine availability in the global south and in low-income nations um, around the world. And, you know, it's you see a lot of proposed solutions, many of which make sense. You see strong words from the WHO and other global bodies, but it, it just feels like we're, we're lacking the critical mass of, of wealthy nations to actually step up with really effective means of, of changing the disparity in access to vaccines. And then, you know, we've said this on this podcast, the definition of pandemic is that it's a global phenomenon. And so as long as this virus is raging somewhere in the world, you know, we are all in some added uh, form of danger. And so, you know, it's, I guess, a downer to end this segment on, but but it, it, it doesn't go away. So, Damien, you had a really interesting story published this week. Thank you. Yeah, so the, assuming I know which one you're talking about, uh, there's a company called Sessinbio uh, that was developing a treatment for bladder cancer. And they spent, well, really a number of years, but all of 2021 describing 
um, their really positive interactions with the FDA, and the drug was slated to get a final decision uh, this month, which I think, you know, based on the stock price, people assumed would be an approval. We learned, based on uh, internal company documents, that the clinical trial supporting that drug was a mess, I feel like is an objective description. There were thousands of violations of the trial protocol, including 215 that were coded as major. Um, in a study with just 130 patients, there was investigator misconduct that was reported to the FDA. Uh, we learned from these documents that misconduct included serious noncompliance that, quote, placed subjects at risk of harm. And then, you know, maybe most alarming, uh, what we learned from those documents is that this drug appeared to have really serious liver toxicities. Um, for patients. And in many cases, those issues weren't publicly disclosed by the company, Sesson Bio, is something we learned from these documents. I want to make sure to attribute that. This all does sound really bad. A mess, as you say, is probably the word for it. But I'm curious what it says more broadly about the current regulatory system that we're not finding all this out from the regulator that reviewed this drug or from the company that developed it. Broadly speaking, what's going on here? Right. So, you know, the way the Sesson Bio story concludes is that the FDA rejected that drug, which based on, you know, everything I just described, and you can read our story for more details, seems like a pretty reasonable thing for the FDA to do. But if you go back to all that time in which Sesson's press releases made it seem like the FDA was on board with this drug, it really underlines a really like time honored frustration, which is that the FDA, by policy, does not comment on drugs under review. So for investors or really anyone who might be curious about something, you can rely only on the company and the press releases it puts out. So in the case of Sesson Bio, as we said, those public statements didn't necessarily jibe with the reality. Um, but this has happened time and again, where a drug gets rejected or an FDA application is delayed, a stock price tanks, everyone's very frustrated, and they look back at a company's press releases and say, like, but it all seemed so good heading into this. And... Um, basically, yeah, it's it's this this phenomenon that that happens over and over in biotech, which because of FDA policy and because especially smaller biotech companies who may be developing only one or two drugs and thus are sort of existentially dependent on those drugs working, um, it's difficult to really suss out what the truth is. It's funny this kind of frustration was actually expressed in 2015 in a BMJ paper from I believe someone at the FDA who tried to study quantitatively and qualitatively how often company statements jived, as you say, with with press releases. And it turns out not very often. We have numbers for this. Uh, Peter Lurie and some of his other colleagues published a paper in BMJ in 2015 where they tried to analyze uh, some of the comments that were made publicly by companies about drugs that later received a CRL or about companies about drugs that did receive a CRL, which is a rejection letter, basically. They found that actually... For about one in five rejected drugs, companies just didn't bother issuing a press release at all, letting people know that the drug had been rejected. Um, and in quite a number of cases, it seems like, again, about one in five, the press releases that companies put out didn't actually match the statements that the FDA had made in those letters, um, which I suppose, given everything that we know, Damien, shouldn't actually be surprising, but it is kind of still... Um, shocking to see it put into such stark terms. Right. And and to come from the FDA itself, I mean, it's not hard to uh, intuit from that, that people within the agency find this frustrating. You know, they, they are working hard. They're trying to do their jobs as sort of like gatekeepers of public health. And then they see a press release from some company, you know, misrepresenting what they say. And, you know, there's been 
support for more transparency, whether it be publishing redacted versions of those rejection letters such that the public might have a better idea of what's actually going on or, you know, any number of other steps that might shed some light on it. And in fact, uh, in a past life as a Forbes contributor, one uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, I believe, advocated for many versions of this. And so when he was nominated to be FDA commissioner uh, back in 2016, I believe it was, or 2017, um, a lot of people expected that maybe he might actualize that. He did not uh, get around to it. I don't know if his opinion on it changed or if there were just other things to deal with, but there's definitely support for transparency, clearly within the FDA and definitely within public health circles. And then, you know, maybe least importantly, but still relevant among biotech investors, frankly. Yeah, I was seeing that whole discourse get launched again on Twitter just yesterday. You know, there was a um, there were a number of people tweeting that this would not only be good for the drug development community for investors, but also for patients, as as one VC put it, you know, it's not just a stock market request. It'll be interesting to see if that ever does change. I feel like I feel like given what we've seen and given the other kind of opportunities that we've had as a society to have this changed, I feel like something pretty big would have to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, we're we're living in the reality of there is no full or permanent FDA commissioner. And as uh, our colleague Nick Florco was explaining last week on this podcast, there's really not any political will right now to change that. And that's like the headline name at FDA. So when we get down to some of these more in the weeds policies with respect to the agency, I think it's uh, reasonable to conclude that, you know, that there isn't really a, a groundswell of uh, intention to really drive that. I did want to note before we go, because I believe we are statutorily required to talk about Adjuhelm uh, on every episode of this podcast. Yes. The, uh, that that dichotomy or that, that sort of phenomenon of, you know, not being sure whether companies are being honest about FDA uh, interactions, you know, we're talking about all the negative aspects of it, but it kind of cuts the other direction too throughout really all of 2019 and 2020. Biogen was saying that they had had these positive interactions with the FDA about Aduhelm, which was then known as aducanumab, their Alzheimer's treatment. And everybody smart in biotech seemed to kind of, you know, look down their noses at that, assuming Biogen was doing what companies often do, which is maybe misrepresenting or putting sort of a rosy shade on their conversations with the FDA. But as we have since learned uh, in shocking detail, Biogen, if anything, was being conservative. The FDA was very positive about Aduhelm. So again, another thing we could have learned with more transparency. Right. It seems like really what we're asking for with this transparency is just to have a sense of when when things actually are as they seem. We It seems like what we're asking for is to be able to read into things a little bit more than we currently can, which is to say that we're just kind of throwing darts at a board to see which um, which statement is true and which statement might be blowing things a little out of proportion. In the U.S., the vast majority of people who get hospitalized with COVID-19 are unvaccinated. That's a frustrating fact for anyone to read, but it's a devastating reality for the healthcare workers who spend each day trying to save the lives of patients who have chosen to put themselves at serious risk of death. Statslev Fasher spent last week in Louisiana, a state where just 38% of the population has been vaccinated against COVID-19 and where cases are surging, creating a harrowing reality for caregivers. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Thank you. So beyond kind of that thumbnail, what's the situation in Louisiana right now with COVID-19? The situation's really bad. The state's population vaccination rate is under 40%, and many of the hospitals there have more COVID inpatients than they've had 
at any point during the entire pandemic. So there's really a degree of strain on the health system there that somehow we haven't actually seen at any point in the last year and a half. And it's being driven almost entirely by folks who've not gotten vaccinated and who are now showing up to hospitals in larger numbers than ever, severely ill, unfortunately, younger than ever in many cases, and many are not surviving. So you spent a lot of time with a nurse named Brett Engel, who works with the National Disaster Medical System, which, as you put it, is basically a National Guard for healthcare and emergency response. How has she spent the last 18 months, and what made this deployment to Louisiana different? So Bren was really remarkable. She, from February 2020, has been serving these emergency missions on behalf of the federal government. Her first was to the Diamond Princess cruise ship. And since then, she's just been sent really everywhere to Texas, to California, to Navajo Nation, to Washington, D.C. She's been all around the country fulfilling a variety of roles, sometimes testing and contact tracing. More often, though, assisting hospitals that are just entirely overrun by COVID patients who require really, really intense care. For instance, in Louisiana, she's caring for patients who are almost entirely unvaccinated. And of course, that was true back in January 2021, when we saw really the the worst U.S. surge to date. The difference now is that everyone she's treating has access to vaccines, and they've had access to vaccines for months and months. So they really no longer view it necessarily as an access issue. At this point, there are just patients who have chosen time and time again not to be vaccinated when they have the opportunity. And now they're they're paying the price. And it's just, you can imagine how dispiriting it is for these health workers whose job it is to essentially parachute into the worst situations around the entire country. Often they're natural disasters. So not only are they treating these patients who are sick and in many cases didn't need to be sick, but they're also upending their own lives in a way they didn't think they'd have to once vaccinations were widely available. Bren is uh, based in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, and she's been flying around the country. They're calling her at 10 p.m. and saying, you're on a plane at six o'clock in the morning. And that's something that she's having to do repeatedly because of these continued COVID surges around the country, again, driven almost entirely by the unvaccinated population. Well, right. So on that point, the crux of your story is really that the caregivers who are already exhausted by the pandemic are now dealing with a rising death rate driven pretty much solely by patients' unwillingness to get a free vaccine that probably would have kept them out of the hospital in the first place. I know you talked to people um, in addition to Brent Engel. How, how did they describe this phenomenon they're living through, like at this stage of the pandemic, uh, facing that reality? I talked to a physician assistant named Aaron Lennon who used the phrase soul draining. I think that's a pretty good encapsulation of how these folks feel. I do want to note, though, that there's certainly anger, there's immense frustration, but it's not really at individual patients. It's at the broader reality. Of course, these healthcare professionals are not in hospitals kind of passing judgment on particular people who are on ventilators who really are are not likely to survive the week or even the day. But there's an anger at the disinformation ecosystem surrounding vaccines. There's anger at political leadership or lack thereof surrounding vaccination campaigns. They're just broadly so, so dispirited that collectively 
we have the tools to effectively end the pandemic or at least prevent this number of people from getting this sick. And in addition to that, let them go back to their lives. Let them at least have calmer work days. Let these federal reservists stop jumping on planes for these really insane two-week deployments where they're working 14-hour days uh, for two weeks straight. They're frustrated that a year and a half in, and with the tools that we have available, they are still working this hard and they are still bearing witness, frankly, to this much death. It's, I, I think I'll come back to the phrase soul draining. That's the pretty collective feeling that I experience. So this is particularly dire in Louisiana, as you know, but there are similar situations unfolding in Texas, in Florida and elsewhere. On a macro level, is there anything that can be done to alleviate the burden that this is putting on people like Ingle? I think what they would tell you is they just want folks to get vaccinated. To them, that's the main tool to prevent people from showing up at the hospital in the first place. Obviously, we've gotten better as the pandemic has progressed at, at treating COVID. But to a certain degree, when someone shows up with really severe illness, there's only so much that a hospital is able to do. And as you all know, often they show up and they get really fantastic care and they die anyway. So, you know, staffing is an issue at hospitals around the country. There's immense burnout. There are actually even folks at Our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center in Louisiana, where my colleague Alex Hogan and I spent time last week, staffers who are out sick because they have COVID. So, you know, it's just a bad situation broadly in terms of staffing, in terms of exhaustion, and in terms of this flood of almost entirely unvaccinated patients showing up. Uh, But one health worker, she put it this way. She said, we're exhausted. We need your prayers. And could you also get vaccinated? Yeah. Lev, just to follow up on the burnout point, I'm curious if you heard a lot of discussion about how people were trying to maintain their mental health while you were down there. Are there resources that are being made available to folks who are in Bren's position? I think it varies from workplace to workplace. In the particular context of the National Disaster Medical System, which, like you said, is kind of this national guard for healthcare. They send in teams to hospitals or disaster areas that really need them. Yeah, there are really good mental health resources. They have not only a a safety officer who's monitoring stuff like masking and protective equipment, but they have a mental health professional who is able to pretty quickly jump into action and help the staff work through some of the more traumatic stuff they see day to day. And in particular, when there are patient deaths, they'll do group sessions, they'll check in with folks one-on-one. I I imagine that different staffers, different uh, clinicians are better or worse at availing themselves of those resources. In this case, though, it's it's a good example of folks who really should have mental health care resources available to them, having them at hand, and it's good to see them being put to use. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which companies you think are being dishonest about their interactions with the FDA. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. 
And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.